Good morning. How is everyone? Good. We're in Colossians chapter 1. Starting in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are gracious to us. We thank you that we can have fellowship with you, that we have it here um, represented with the Lord's Supper, that we truly have fellowship with you, and how appropriate as we continue talking about reconciliation, uh, the enmity that we had against you, you came and, and swept it away, and we are now reconciled to you, a holy and a righteous God. Thank you, Lord, so much for doing that through your Son, and only through your Son. Lord, continue your work in us, continue your work through us, Lord, save those here that don't know you. Save our children at an early age. Be gracious to give them a saving faith. Grow them up and grow us up, Lord, in you for your glory. Amen. All right, here's my main point of my sermon today. It's this. In Christ, who we are is completely different than who we are without Christ. We need to be found in Christ, right? What happens if you're not found in Christ? Bad things, right? On the last day, it's not going to be pretty. If you are not in Christ, then that means you are an unbeliever. You are walking in the unforgiveness of your sins. You're walking in uh, a lack of repentance, and God's judgment is upon you. But if you're found in Christ then you've been reconciled to God, you have the forgiveness of sins, you've repented of your sins, and you are walking in the newness and wholeness of life that only Christ himself offers to us. Now sometimes we act and think like we are without Christ. Any of you ever do that? Yeah, two people, okay. The others of you are doing that right now, and no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Listen, if you have Christ, you always have Christ, right? Now and forever. So, and here's the thing. Uh, sometimes we think Christ is, he's like an add-on or a tack-on to our life. He's like, you know, if, if we've got like 100% of our life, then he's, you know, 5% or 10%. He's just something that kind of gets tacked on. That is not the way the scripture presents Christ to us, is it? No. He's not an add-on. Um, he is our all in all. And he is our identity. Look at Col We're going to get to it eventually, but we're just going to peek a little bit ahead a few verses in Colossians uh, chapter 1. Look what it says. Uh, these verses that talk about uh, Christ in us. Verse 27. 
To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christ is in us, right? Not just part of us, not just 10%, not just a little bit. I mean, he is in us completely and entirely. That is a beautiful thing. And I've, I have meditated and reflected on this verse throughout my Christian walk. It, I think it's just one of the most powerful verses in the New Testament. And I've reflected on it literally for hours and hours. If you add it up all the time, anytime I'm reading through Colossians and I come to verse 27, I, I mean, I pause and I have to think about it and have to chew on it um, because there is so much fullness and richness there. And we get a clear picture of what God is doing in us and what God has done uh, through Christ. Look, look what it says uh, two chapters later in Colossians 3. We get a similar idea. It's, uh, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 3. So, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appeared, right? So Christ is your life. Is that, is that what your version says? Okay, Christ, he's not part of your life, right? He is your life. When Christ, who is, and why is he your life? Because we've died. Verse 3, you have died. So now we've died, and our life is hidden with Christ in God, so that when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will, will appear with him in glory. Amen? Amen? Beautiful picture. So that's Christ being in us. But then there's verses where we are in Christ. Even something, you've heard this verse so many times, but we're just going to look at it all together in Romans 6. Turn there, keep your place in Colossians because we're coming back. Romans 6, last verse in Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. It's death. So the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in whom? In Christ Jesus our Lord, right? So wages of sin, that's bad. Like, death is bad. We get a payment for our sin, and it's death. But what do we get in Christ? The free gift of God is eternal life. That's what we get in Christ. Out of Christ, what do we get? We get death. Do you want death? No, I don't want death. That's a bad thing. But what do we get with Christ? Eternal life. Is that a good thing? Yes, it is. So in Christ, we get all sorts of riches and blessings. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. We'll start in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Anytime you start to think you're a little something, 
You just need to read these verses. Okay? God chose what is foolish. Us. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak. Us. To, bring, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Us. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And look what it says. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. And look at these things that Jesus is. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What God does is completely God 100%. And here, part of it is why? So that there's no boasting on our part. We can't say, oh, I saved myself. I did it myself. No, it's all of God. So that we can't boast even a tiny little bit. So why is reconciliation with God necessary? Because of our rebellion. We rebelled. There was was an attack on God, and we are his enemies apart from Christ. Romans 5 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So while we were the enemies, God does a, a work. Now, normally when you have two people and they're at odds with one another, um, usually there's, there's fault on both sides to some extent. But what if there's just one person just is 100% at fault? doesn't happen too often, but it can. And the one person who's innocent initiates the reconciliation process. Well, I mean, that's what biblical reconciliation looks like with us. God reaches out to us. While we were the enemies, Romans 5, what does God do? He reaches out to us. And what does he offer? He really offers like terms of surrender. We're enemies, and here's what it's going to take to not be enemies any, anymore. Raymond talked about it. Justice emphasized it. Repent and trust in what my son has done for you. That's what it takes. So reconciliation involves change. But here's the thing. God does not change. He's immutable. That's the fancy word. He doesn't change. Rather, he changes us. So there's enmity, and and God's not going to change. Right? He's holy, he's righteous, he's pure. That's not changing. So something has to change, though, for the enmity, enmity to be wiped away, and God changes us. He's the one that does that work. How does he do it? Through Christ. Look back in Colossians and we see this. In verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. That's key right there. Making peace by the blood of his cross. So we're enemies. And what does the cross accomplish? It brings us to peace with God. If you have an enemy, and you don't want to be enemy, there has, you have to come to peace. If you're at war, and you don't want there to be war, there's going to be war, there's going to be peace. There's like no middle ground. Well, Christ's death brings about the peace. Verse 20, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now think about the entire Bible. It's really a story from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, of reconciliation. In the garden, what did you have? Adam and Eve, right? Walking with the Lord. It talks about in the cool of the day. We get this kind of Edenic 
picture. So they're, they're in a relationship with God. They're friends with God. And what happens? The friendship is broken. It's broken. Just like in the first couple chapters, right? Chapter 3, boom, everything falls apart. But what is God doing for the next few thousand years? He's weaving a story of redemption, yes, but of, we could say, reconciliation. So uh, the enmity occurs, we're at war, and what is God doing? He's bringing about reconciliation. Slowly but surely. This is why we have the gospel called, in Ephesians 6, it's called a gospel of peace. Ephesians 6.15, a gospel of peace. And a lot of times, we th- when we think of peace, we think of peace in more of a uh, subjective sense, like, oh, I'm, I'm all, my nerves are all rattled and I, I need some peace. But most of the time, when the Bible talks about peace, it's t- talking about more the objective sense. Like, if you're at war, you're at war. There's, there's no if ands, or buts. But if you're at peace with God, that's an objective sense. You don't want it to be subjective. You don't want, you don't want peace with God. That means it could change, right? It could, it could change according to the subject. But if it's objective, it's not going to change. So the gospel that we have, it's a gospel of peace. Why? Because it brings about reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. Now last time we looked at kind of the before and after of, of who we were before Christ, and who we are after Christ. So what were we before? Look back in Colossians, we get a couple key words. Alienated, which is the idea of being estranged. In the Greek, it adds one extra word that expresses really the idea of the persistence of the state of things. We're not just like alienated once. No, we are in, without Christ, a constant state of alienation. So yes, it did happen initially, but it's an ongoing state that we're in if we don't have Christ. Two were hostile in mind. Okay, not ambivalent, but hostile. One theologian said they act in open enmity toward him with reference to their thinking and in their total conduct. In fact, you could translate it, and some versions do, um, instead of hostile in mind, enemies in mind. Okay, that, again, brings out probably a little, a little um, clear the, the idea of us being enemies of God. And then finally, doing evil deeds. Does this sound positive to you? Is it wholesome? Pure? This was us without Christ. But listen, who we were and who we are, completely different people. Two completely different, and here's the thing, you know, I think I asked last week when people got saved, and a number of people got saved younger, and so I think sometimes you might not uh, personally feel, back to the subjective, that contrast as much. Um, people that maybe get saved older because they've been in, in, in the world and, and, and ate way too much of the, of the pleasures of sin um, see that contrast much more clearly. So I think sometimes we can doubt, and, and doubts will happen but, but address doubts. Don't, don't let them fester. Okay? You might have questions, doubts, concerns. That's okay, uh, but address them. Don't let them dwell. But sometimes I think we think to ourselves, especially maybe if we got saved younger, like, hmm, maybe that was me that was doing all that. You know, who, who I am today and what I've become is really from, from the effort of me. Well, well that's false. 
Listen, what Christ has done in you, both objectively, internally, in terms of a justification in your right standing before God, but also in the idea of sanctification and the subjective of, hey, who you were and who you are, there's, there are two different people. There's change that has occurred. Brothers and sisters, that, that comes by the Holy Spirit working inside and through you to change you to be something else. So who you were, even if you got saved at the age of four, Christ has given you a new mind. He's given you a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5, you are the new creation. So don't ever think, sometimes I think Satan tries to throw stuff at us like that and make us doubt oh, we got saved young and maybe it's really just me. No, if Christ has done a good work, he's done that good work. And, and we can't make ourselves one little tiny bit more holy without the abiding work of the Holy Spirit in us. Are you hearing me? So that's, that's before. Then after, what are we? Look back in, in Colossians. It talks about exactly what we are. We're presented holy. That mean, that's the idea of being set apart. We've been consecrated to God. And this whole uh, imagery here that Paul is painting with the holy and the blameless and above reproach, it really is the idea of the uh, sacrificial animal that would have been presented before the altar and, and sacrifice to God. Even that word blameless, most of the time in the Greek Old Testament, that's the word that's commonly used when it talks about the physical perfection of the required sacrificial animal. Like sometimes your versions might say like uh, without spot or blemish, something along those lines. Well, that's that word there in, in the Old Testament. So this idea of being set apart and consecrated to God, what was the, the, the sacrificial offering? I mean, it was set apart, right? You had the whole, the whole flock, the whole herd, and you found, what, the, the little tiny uh, gimpy one? No, the best one. Right? God wants the best. God wants the best. And he gives us our best. He gives us his best to us. But he wants the best. So he goes there, holy, they, they, they took one. It's set apart. Set apart for whom? I mean, the Lord, right? Now it's his. And it's, and it's to be blameless. So this representation we're getting here is, now this is what's happening for us in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before God. We're, we're being presented, we're not being presented as the offering. Christ was the offering. We're actually being presented more at, before the judge. Now, if you appear before the judge and you're not holy or blameless or above reproach, you got problems, right? Right? But if you're holy, blameless, and above reproach, What's going to happen? Well, you're going to appear before that judge and he's going to make a declaration. This word, these two words present you, it's the legal language meaning to come before the court. So that's what Christ is doing. He's presenting us before the judge and the judge makes the declaration. What's the declaration? Innocent. We are innocent. Not guilty, innocent. So we need to make sure we're not living like guilty people. God doesn't want us living like guilty people. What does Romans 8 say? There is therefore no condemnation. No condemnation. A little bit of condemnation? No, no condemnation. You might, you might feel condemned. You might feel guilty. But that's back to the subjective. The objective, no condemnation. When you're in the courtroom and the judge says innocent, I mean, you might have been through a whole tough time in, in the trial and all sorts of accusations being thrown at you. That's what Satan does. You might not feel that great, but what matters is what the judge 
declares. And he declares what? Innocent. He declares us innocent in his sight. That is the only thing that matters. What God thinks. What God thinks is the only thing that matters. So this is what he's doing for us. Look at Ephesians. This, and this is what he's doing for his bride. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, so 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And then look what he does. So that, so he's doing these things, he's sanctifying her, he's cleansing her, washing her with the water of the word, so that, all those things to accomplish this, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And we're the church, right? We are the church, and this is what Christ is doing in the universal church, but I would say also the local church. What's he doing? He's doing the very things here, sanctifying us, cleansing us, washing us with the word, right? That's, I mean, that's why we're in the word, all right? It's like a giant, you know, sponge, you know, it's like cleaning us, right? I mean, it's cleaning us. Being washed by the, or cleansed by the washing of water with the word. I mean, there's a cleansing effect that the word of God has on our souls. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. And that's what he's doing. Splendor, without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. I mean, there's the parallels here with the Colossians passage. Holy and without blemish. We're presented to Christ. What's God declare? Innocent. We, we appear before Christ, or we appear before God the Father through Christ. What's he seeing us as? He's seen us in the splendor and holiness that, that he himself has given to us. One theologian said, if the judicial overtones are present in the clause, then Paul is asserting that the purpose of God's work of reconciling the readers through Christ's death was that they should be irreproachable when they finally stand before him. In other words, above reproach. Now, last week we talked about four things that Christ does for us in salvation. Let's see if we remember those four things, okay? So we deserve to die as the penalty for sin. What is Christ for us? The sacrifice. We deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. So what is Christ for us? The propitiation. We are separated from God by our sins. So what, is, what does Christ do? What does he accomplish? The reconciliation. You got the R part, but that's about it there. <clears throat> reconciliation. And then we are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. What does he do for us? He redeems. He's our redeemer. He's our reconciler, right? He's the propitiation and he is the sacrifice. Amen? It's beautiful. So here, that word reconciliation, it's normally, um, it's just pronounced katalasso. But here, Paul... Uh, puts on a little preposition to the front of it, which uh, has the effect of intensifying the word. So the idea here, when it talks about the reconciliation back in Colossians, that, that Christ accomplishes, he is now, verse 22, reconciled in his body. The idea is that it is thoroughly reconciled, completely reconciled, totally reconciled. 
And you're like, well, why does he use it here and not elsewhere? Because, well, think about what Paul is combating. He's combating the false teachers who are teaching all sorts of wacky things, including worship of angels and different things. So he's emphasizing that Christ and Christ alone is the only one who accomplishes the reconciliation. And the reconciliation that he does is fully thorough and complete. It's not lacking anything at all. So we need to realize for us, listen, our reconciliation is thorough and complete. It's not lacking anything. Is there anything that Christ has done for us where he's lacking? No, not one tiny bit, right? The full scope and measure of what he came to accomplish, I mean, was it 99%? No, 100% is what Christ has accomplished. Notice the reconciliation that occurs is more than just us being reconciled to God. Back in verse 20, he's reconciling us to the Father, but also to reconcile himself to himself all things. What's that? It's the earth, it's the heavens. Why is that, why is that going on? Because creation itself cries out for reconciliation with God. Look at Romans 8. Verse 18, Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation is in bondage. It wants to be set free. It's like crying out. It wants to be set free. What's God going to do? He's going to set it free. He's going to set it free. The entire creation groans for redemption. Listen, the curse in the garden affected not just mankind, but all of creation. I mean, the ground got cursed, right? Well, it's still cursed, all right? Those of you who have gardens, you know. Here's what John MacArthur said. If you want the simplest explanation, God is going to make friends with the universe again. That's the broad idea of reconciliation. God is going to end rebellion and make friends with the universe. It's going to come back into harmony. How is he going to do it? By him. By whom? By Christ. Christ is the agent. He will carry out the reconciliation. Now, some of you, if you've been paying attention and you keep reading, you might ask, well, you're giving us a lot of assurance here, Pastor, about walking with Christ that we can't be removed from him. But look at verse 23. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, if indeed, which seems to potentially indicate some uh, doubt, right? If, if. Well, interesting thing, um, I actually have it all written out. We're actually not going to get into it. But there's four types of, of if statements in Greek. Four types. And there's actually two different Greek words uh, for if. And so two of the types of if statements are one Greek word, and two of the types of statements are the other Greek word. Are you with me so far? Yes. 
Okay. Um, the one that he uses here, long story short, the one that he uses here is really the idea of it's being assumed true for argument's sake. So it's not like a hope or a condition or he's placing any doubt on their condition. No, if anything, uh, par- if you wanted to paraphrase it, you would say something like this. If you continue in the faith, and I know that you will, or you could say, if you continue in the faith, and I have assurance that you will, and then goes on. That's the type of if, if we've really dug in, which we won't, um, because only probably three people would be super interested in it, okay? Um, and, and you just might not track with me anyway, so, okay. But does the context really support this view? I mean, that's really the thing. It always comes back to context, Greek, English, uh, Latin, Hebrew, Spanish, whatever, the context, and really, yes, it does. If we keep reading, and we, we pick it up in chapter 2, he says in verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For, and then here's, where, here, here's kind of what he's driving at. Um, and, we're, and it's really cool because uh, there's uh, a chiasm going on. We're going to start looking at it next week. If you don't know what that word is, I'll explain it then. But his whole argument kind of builds up and then, and then uh, works away from it. But it really is, this is the last verse in this little section here. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So, I mean, he had confidence that they're walking with Christ. The firmness of your faith in Christ. So the context supports it. Paul's very confident of their faith. Listen, where are you at in terms of confidence of your faith? If you have Christ, you have complete confidence that what he has done is more than enough. You can have complete confidence, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And and too many believers today... I think we even sang about it a little bit, uh, probably a little bit different context, but it's like uh, we're living like there's an ongoing famine. And we need to quit living in the desert. It's like we've set up a little tent in the desert. But, but we have the promised land, okay? We're not like the Israelites roaming around for 40 years. God's brought us through the promised land. That promised land is Christ. And if we have Christ, regardless of how bad it is, regardless of how awful it is, we still have Christ. And he is with us. And he will see us through to the end. Every single step, Christ is with us. You're like, I don't feel like Christ is with me. Hey, guess what? Sometimes I don't either. But we're back to the subjective versus the objective. Are we going to believe what the scriptures say? Or are we going to believe what we think and feel? If you believe what you think and feel, then one day you're going to believe A, and the next day you're going to believe B, and the next day you're going to believe C, and the next day you're going mean, to be all over the map. It's going to be crazy. It's not going to be any fun. You're going to be like James, uh, what James talks about. You're tossed to and fro uh, by every wind of doctrine. You know, one day you're believing this thing, and the next day you're believing that thing, and the next day you're believing that thing. No, you want to ground it in objective truth. And the objective truth is that Christ has you. The objective truth is that he is with you every single step of the way. You might not feel like it, <clears throat> but that's you. What does Christ think about the situation? Now, he promises, I will never leave you, 
nor forsake you. He promises to be with us. He promises that when we fall down, what does it say? The righteous get back up. And who's getting us back up? None other than Jesus himself. So we're not living in the desert, brothers and sisters. We're not living in, in a little tent in the corner. No, we're in the promised land. And you're not cursed. You're not under the curse of the law. You've been blessed by God. And if you have Christ, you have all the blessings in Christ. You have all the riches in Christ Jesus. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So he redeemed us from the curse of the law. There's that redeem word, that redemption, right? That's part of what Christ did for us. What did he do? He redeemed us from the curse of the law. What was the curse? It's that death. Back to Romans 6, right? The wages of sin is what? Death. That's the payment. But what does Christ do? He redeems us. From that curse. Look at Galatians two chapters later, Galatians five. For freedom, verse one, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's the yoke of slavery? I mean, it's slavery to sin. It's slavery to your own selfish desires, passions, and lusts. But what does Christ do? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Not to, to live our own way, but to live as a slave of Christ, to live for Him. So here's the thing. It's really simple. If you don't love the things Jesus loves, you won't love Jesus for long. Because the world is telling us, you know, this is, I mean, it's, it's Pride Month, you know, so all the displays have come out. It's really, um, you know, Life Month because Dobbs, right, a year ago. You got to choose. And if you don't love the things Jesus loves, you're not going to love Jesus for very long. Because you can't serve two masters. And if you're trying to love what the world is telling us to love, you just, at the end of the day, will end up not loving Jesus. And for some people, it's a, it's a slow decline. It's a slow decline. Justice was sharing with me yesterday about someone used to appeared used to be a strong believer used to be it looked like it but it's a slow fade usually and then they're on they're on social media uh, praying around the rainbow flag okay you can't love jesus and also love the things that jesus hates i mean it's it's just that simple so make sure your heart is where it needs to be loving Jesus and love the things that he loves. Does he love sin? No. No, he hates sin. He hates sin. He detests it. So if we want to love Jesus, we have to love the things that he loves. Purity, righteousness, wholeness, goodness, all of those things. Not sin. Uh, I had a man who I'd done some work for uh, text me this past week um, that he's getting divorced. And, and <clears throat> I was shocked. I, w I wasn't shocked that another couple was getting divorced, but I was shocked that this particular, 
I don't know if they're believers or not. I, I don't. Um, but I was just shocked at this couple because when I was around them, I was around them for a few days. Like, they seemed to truly and genuinely enjoy each other's company. It seemed like they had a good relationship. In fact, and I even texted this to them. I'm like, and I t- texted them. I'm like, I'm shocked. I'm like, the, the way y'all interacted was actually an encouragement to me in my marriage to, to make sure I'm being gracious and loving to my wife. Well, so how can that happen? Well, a number of, of, of reasons and ways. <clears throat> but listen, we have to be on guard. We have to be on guard. And if we're not loving Jesus and the things that Jesus loves, then the enemy will creep in and our flesh will creep in. And it will send us down a dark hole and it will send us down a spiral and it is no good place that we end up. Each one of us here, without Christ, we'd be in a world of hurt. A world of hurt. He's gracious to be with us each step of the way. And listen, what we get and what Christ has done for us, we take that and then we offer that to others. We're the agents of reconciliation. We're the ministers of it. That's the ministry that's been given to us. 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And sometimes, I've been guilty of it myself, we have to remember, unbelievers... In one sense, unbelievers, they're not the enemy. They're, the, they're an enemy of God. But they're not our enemy. Not in one sense. They're the mission. And too often we label them as the enemy and not the mission. And if you think someone's your enemy, you're very unlikely, even though we're called by God to do that, but we're very unlikely to make them the mission. And so one, one starts to over, overshadow really our view. Listen, if we're the agents and, and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, what did God do for us it's the, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were against him? God comes for us. So what are we supposed to do now that we have the ministry of reconciliation? Well, now that they're still enemies of God, they're still against him, we're coming with the message of hope for them. We got to bring it to them. We want to bring it and, and, and speak life into And sometimes, you know, when you're talking to people, they might not feel, ideally they feel the weight of their sin, but they might not. And sometimes people push back. And they're like, I, I don't feel guilty. I, I don't feel guilty at all. You're talking about the weight of my sin, and I, I don't feel the weight at all. It's as light as a feather. Well, listen. I mean, if we took um, a 400-pound weight and put it on a corpse, are, are they, is the corpse going to feel that? That's not going to feel the weight. Well, those people, they're dead in their sins, right? Dead in their sins. So they very well might not feel the weight of their sin. That 400-pound weight on a dead corpse isn't going to feel it. They need God himself to convict them of their sin, to open their eyes to feel that. And guess what? I mean, sometimes when I'm, when I'm praying for people, I'm like, Lord, just like tie a little, a little metaphorical you know, uh, rope uh, with a big old rock around their heart so it just kind of weighs them down. Why? Because when people start to feel the weight of their sin, they realize they need to do something about it. Some people do, and they try to solve it all sorts of different ways. Drugs, alcohol, sex, all, all sorts of different things. The only answer is Christ. To truly solve the problem, 
those things, those fade, those go away. Those, I mean, it's, just, it's an endless cycle. Christ, he comes, he does it. The declaration of God that we're justified before him, the reconciliation that we get, the redemption that occurs, the bondage to sin removed, being in the kingdom of Satan taken away and put into God's kingdom, all that happens instantaneously through Christ. So let's make sure that if these are true about us, that we are the holy, the blameless, the above reproach, right? And that's what we are. It's a positional thing. But it's also, it's an objective truth that we're walking out. So positionally, that's what we are. We might not feel like it, but listen, it's back to the before and after. If we had a before picture of who you were before Christ, it should look different than, than the picture now. Correct? It should be before and after pictures. It should look different. So if we're, if we're not exhibiting these things, a holiness about us, a bl- not like a holier than now, but just a righteousness, that we're walking according to the things of Christ, that by and large, we're trying to walk in according with the holiness that's laid out before us in the scriptures. Are we going to slip up? Yes. Are we going to mess up? Yes. God's grace, time and time again. But are we going to walk willingly in a known sin? Not for very long. Not for very long. Not if we're really one of his. Why? Because that, if we've got the Holy Spirit in us, I mean, that, that weight of sin is going to be weighing on our hearts. You ever, you ever messed up? and you feel that weight of sin, it's not a good feeling, is it? But in one sense, it's it's a good feeling because it means God wants us to do something about it. He wants it to deal with it. Uh, He wants us to deal with it. He wants us to address it. All that to say God has been gracious through his son to save us, to do a work of reconciliation and the enmity that we had with Christ and with the Father has been completely removed. And now we have friendship with God. We're not just friends with him, we're his children. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your mercy upon us. Lord, I I pray for that person who texted me. You do a work in his life, in his wife's life. Save them if they don't know you. Save their marriage. Lord, I pray for us, God, I pray for the marriages here that you would uh, be sovereign over them and protect uh, each one of them. Lord, we ask for your mercy upon our children, that you would protect them, that they would make wise and godly choices. Give us wisdom as parents as we shepherd and nurture them. Father, help us to clearly see what you've done for us. We've only got, we've only started to grasp fully what we have in Christ, and it is beautiful and amazing. Continue to open our eyes to your scriptures. Continue to open our eyes to the beauty of your word. Continue to open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel. It is truly a gospel of peace. It brings reconciliation with you. Thank you, Father, that we are made back whole with you through Jesus. We love you. Amen.